Section 20 of The Living Animals of the World, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Living Animals of the World, Volume 1. Mammals by Charles Lewis Cornish. Editor. The Coyote or Prairie Wolf. Besides the large gray wolf, a smaller and less formidable animal is common on the prairies and mountains of the northern half of the continent of America. This is the coyote. It takes the place of the hyena as a scavenger, but has some of the habits of the fox. It catches birds and buck rabbits and feeds on insects as well as small rodents like prairie dogs and mice. Its melancholy howls make night hideous on the northern prairies, and it is the steady foe of all young creatures, such as the fawns of pronghorned antelope and deer. Its skin, like that of most northern carnivora, is thick and valuable for fur wraps. The coyotes assemble in packs like jackals. In the National Park in the Yellowstone Valley, gray wolves and coyotes are the only animals which it is absolutely necessary to destroy as the deer and antelope and other game increased under state protection, the wolves and coyotes drew towards a quarter where there were no hunters and a good supply of food. It was soon found that the increase of the game was checked. The coyotes used to watch the hinds when about to drop their calves, and usually succeeded in killing them. The large gray wolves killed the hinds themselves, and generally made life most unpleasant for the dwellers in this paradise. Orders were issued to kill off all the wolves by any means. Poison was found to be the best remedy, but in the winter, when all the game descended into the valleys, the wolves found so much fresh food in the carcasses of the animals they killed for themselves that they would not eat very eagerly of the poisoned baits. The coyotes were killed off fairly closely, as they were less able to obtain living prey. But the gray wolves are constantly reinforced from the mountains and are a permanent enemy to be coped with. A curious instance of change of habit in wolves on the American prairies was recently noted in the Spectator. Formerly they followed the caravans. Now they come down to the great transcontinental railways and haunt the line to obtain food. Each train which crosses the prairie is, like a ship, full of provisions. Three meals a day take place regularly, and these are not stinted. The black cooks throw all the waste portions, beef bones, other bones, stale bread, and trimmings, overboard. The wolves have learnt that the passing of a train means food, and when they hear one, they gallop down to the line, and wait like expectant dogs in the hope of picking up a trifle. The coyotes come close to the metals, and sit like terriers, with their sharp noses pricked up. The big gray wolves also appear in the early morning, standing on the snow, over which the chill wind of winter blows, gaunt and hungry images of winter and famine. Some years ago, experiments were made at the Regent's Park Zoological Gardens to ascertain if there were any foundation for the old legends that wolves feared the sound of stringed instruments, such as the violin. Everyone will remember the story of the fiddler pursued by wolves. It is said that as the pack overtook him, he broke a string of his instrument, 
and that the sudden noise of the parting cord caused the pack to stand still for a minute, and so enabled him to reach a tree, which he climbed. Further, that when he improved on the hint so given, and played his fiddle, the wolves all sat still. When he left off, they leapt up and tried to reach him. Experiments with the zoo wolves showed that there was no doubt whatever that the low minor chords played on a violin caused the greatest fear and agitation in wolves, both European and Indian. The instrument was first played behind the den of an Indian wolf and out of sight. At the first sound, the wolf began to tremble, erected its fur, dropped its tail between its legs, and crept uneasily across its den. As the sounds grew louder and more intense, the wolf trembled so violently and showed such physical evidence of being dominated by excessive fright that the keeper begged that the experiment might be discontinued, or the creature would have a fit. A large European wolf is described in Life at the Zoo as having exhibited its dislike of the music in a different way. It set up all its fur till it looked much larger than its ordinary size, and drew back its lips until all the white teeth protruding from the red gums were shown. It kept silent till the violin player approached it. Then it flew at him with a ferocious growl and tried to seize him. There are instances of wolves having been quite successfully tamed and developing great affection for their owners. They are certainly more dog-like than any fox, yet even the fox has been tamed so far as to become a domesticated animal for the lifetime of one particular individual. An extraordinary instance of this was lately given in country life with a photograph of the fox. It was taken when a cub and brought up at a large country house with a number of dogs. Among these were three terriers, with which it made friends. There were plenty of wild foxes near, some of which occasionally laid up in the laurels in a shrubbery not far from the house. These laurels were, in fact, a fairly safe find for a fox. It was the particular sport of the terriers to be taken to draw this bit of cover and to chase out any fox in it. On these expeditions, the tame fox invariably accompanied them and took an active part in the chase, pursuing the wild fox as far as the terriers were able to maintain the hunt. In Central Asia, the wolves lie out singly on the steppes in the summer and feed on the young antelopes and the lambs and kids of the Tartars' flocks. The Kyrgyz organize wolf-killing parties, to which as many mounted men and dogs come as can be brought together. In order to aid the dogs, the Tartars often employ eagles trained to act like falcons, which sit on the arm of the owner. As the eagle is too heavy to be carried for any time in this way, a crutch is fastened to the left side of the saddle, on which the bearer of the falcon rests his arm. When a wolf is sighted, the eagle is loosed, and at once flies after the wolf and overtakes it in a short time, striking at its head and eyes with its talons and buffeting it with its wings. This attack so disconcerts the wolf that it gives time for the dogs to come up and seize it. The habits of the Siberian wolf are rather different from those in West Russia, and the settlers and nomad Tartars of Siberia are far more adventurous and energetic 
in defending themselves against its ravages than the peasants of European Russia. Being mounted, they also have a great advantage in the pursuit. The result is that Siberian wolves seldom appear in large packs and very rarely venture to attack man. Yet the damage they do to the flocks and herds, which constitute almost the only property of the nomad tribes, is very severe. Both the Russians and Siberians believe that when a she-wolf is suckling her young, she carefully avoids attacking flocks in the neighborhood of the place where the cubs lie, but that if she be robbed of her whelps, she revenges herself by attacking the nearest flock. On this account, the Siberian peasants rarely destroy a litter, but hamstring the young wolves and then catch them when partly grown and kill them for the sake of their fur. Among the ingenious methods used for shooting wolves in Siberia is that of killing them from sledges. A steady horse is harnessed to a sledge, and the driver takes his seat in front as usual. Behind sit two men armed with guns and provided with a small pig, which is induced to squeak often and loudly. In the rear of the sledge, a bag of hay is trailed on a long rope. Any wolf in the forest near which hears the pig concludes that it is a young wild one separated from its mother. Seeing the hay bag trailing behind the sledge in the dusk, it leaps out to seize it and is shot by the passengers sitting on the back seat of the sledge. End of section 20